way the doctor was acting, it was as if they couldn't treat her if she'd had an abortion. He put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye. He said, look, your roommate is having a miscarriage, right? And I knew that's what I had to say. I knew it was against the law. And so, of course, I said, yes, she's having a miscarriage. And then everybody got into action. They got her into ICU. They hooked her up. They did the whole thing. I have no idea what would have happened if I hadn't said that. Good morning. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm Andrea Pineda Salgado. On May 2nd, a draft opinion was leaked from the Supreme Court. The public soon discovered that the court had voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, a 1973 decision that established a woman's constitutional right to an abortion. Immediately, protests broke across the country, and right here in New York City, you can hear chants of My Body, My Choice, Reproductive Rights for All, and End Abortion Violence. Many argued that this decision could set the U.S. back more than 50 years, to a time when women who were in need of an abortion were forced to get one illegally in unsafe conditions. So what exactly did those unsafe conditions look like? What circumstances has Roe v. Wade protected so many women from over the past five decades? Today, I talked to Judith Vivell, an artist living in Soho, about what it was like for women seeking abortions before the Roe v. Wade decision. My name is Judith Vivell. I'm 82 years old. I'm a working artist. I live in New York City in Soho. And would you mind telling me a little bit more about the the first abortion that you helped? Um, I think I was a sophomore, and I lived uh, in a woman's uh, residence. My, my roommate uh, was from San Diego, so we spent a lot of time in Tijuana. When we were kids, we used to go down to Tijuana on dates, and we'd go to the bullfights, and Tijuana was much cheaper and more fun than San Diego. So my roommate and I, both being having gone to high school in San Diego, were very familiar with Tijuana. And of course, at the time, it was 1960, abortions in the United States were illegal, but you could get one in Tijuana. And my roommate came to me one day and said, I need you to do me a favor. And I said, sure, what is it? And she said, I have to get an abortion. So Berkeley is about nine and a half hours from Tijuana. So we were in finals. I had one final left. And so she was waiting for me in her car. So we drove down there and it was my job to wait outside in the car and neither one of us had ever been to this part of Tijuana and when my friend came out she was bleeding and we got out of there as fast as possible because we were both really scared so we stayed overnight in a motel outside of San Diego and she was bleeding all night and I said we've got to go to an ER you, you, this is not good. 
I'm really scared. And she said, they'll arrest me. I can't go. I won't go. So I drove over 70 miles an hour all the way back. And in those days, that was pretty fast on California roads. She was almost unconscious by the time we got to Berkeley. There was a hospital on campus, health center, but it was also a hospital. And I took the cars out, the key out of the car so she couldn't drive away, went into the hospital and told the doctor, my, my roommate's bleeding. And he said, where is she bleeding? And I said, from her vagina. And I didn't say she'd had an abortion because I just couldn't bring myself to say that mm-hmm. at the time. And he said, she's having a miscarriage. And he put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye and said, she's having a miscarriage, right? Mm-hmm. And I knew that he meant that I should say that. So I said, yes, she's having a miscarriage. From there, they went out and got her, dragged her out of the car, put her in the ICU. She was in the ICU for three days. She lived. She went from there to get a PhD at Brown in English literature, got married, happily married, and had three children. But it was touch and go, Andrea. Mm -hmm. Did she ever talk to you about We never spoke about it again. That was so scary and so... There was something shameful about it because at the time, having an abortion was against the law. You know, you were breaking the law and you didn't want anybody to know about it. Her parents couldn't know about it. It was something you didn't... And I was the only person that she was close enough to trust to go with her. Mm. Can you imagine? So terrifying. And the thing that is so annoying to me is that in those days, women were second-class citizens. But at least privileged or unprivileged, you were, where abortion was concerned, you were pretty much all in the same boat. Mm. Now, of course women who are as privileged as my roommate was would easily get an abortion whereas an unprivileged person someone with not a lot of money can't get an abortion or has trouble getting an abortion or really has to worry about it um what would have happened if she had admitted it to being an abortion would she have gotten arrested right there in the hospital I have no idea, but the way the doctor was acting, it was as if they couldn't treat her if she'd had an abortion. Mm-hmm. In other words, the, I can't tell you how he put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye. This guy was probably 30. He was a young guy. Mm-hmm. And he said, look, your roommate is having a miscarriage, right? And I knew that's what I had to say. I knew it was against the law. I knew it was sticky wicket. And so, of course, I said, yes, she's having a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. Fine. And then everybody got into action. They got out there. They they got her into ICU. They hooked her up. They did the whole thing. I have no idea what would have happened 
if I hadn't said that. Like Judith explained, Roe v. Wade gave women the right to safe abortions, a right that is once again in jeopardy. In reaction to the leaked Supreme Court opinion, New York is already ramping up its abortion protections. One of them is a Reproductive Freedom and Equity Bill. I spoke with Assemblymember Jessica Gonzalez Rojas, who introduced the bill about what it could mean for women in New York State, as well as women coming from out of state. So just to start off, would you mind telling me um, a little bit more about the bill? It would create a mechanism to drive grant money to uh, improve uh, and shore up access to abortion care in New York. Um, And it does it in three ways. It would empower the Department of Health um, to provide money to nonprofits and abortion providers for providing abortion care and all the things surrounding that, everything from training and retention of staff, retrofitting their facility, beefing up security, It would also, number two, deal with uh, uncompensated care so that we can provide care to abortions to anyone who, no matter if they're insured or uninsured. And then the last piece is to provide practical support. Um, So it would direct money to nonprofits that support people in accessing abortion care and provide resources based on needs for travel, for child care, for Uh, hotel stays, for an abortion doula, any of that kind of practical support to ensure that somebody who is pregnant and needs an abortion can get one. Um, So that's the the goal of the bill. And I have about almost 30 co-sponsors on it. And it was just introduced uh, a week ago, the day after the Supreme Court leak happened. So I'm very proud of the work we've done so far, and I'm really pushing to get this done. Mm -hmm. And how long has it been in the works? Is it something recent that came, you know, because of the news? So um, actually, given the impending Supreme Court case, we we were working on this a few weeks back. Uh, We were partnering with organizations like Planned Parenthood to to check in on what the needs will be if Roe fell. It was prior to the leak, so we weren't yet sure of a decision, but there was a lot of trepidation about how bad the decision could be, and we wanted to make sure we were ready. So we actually had been working on it, and when the decision was leaked, we were able to drop the bill the very next day. So, you know, we were ready, um, even though the leak was a little unprecedented and unexpected. um, I think the ruling, the anticipated ruling, wasn't one that was totally unexpected. So we wanted to, again, make sure that New York could be a beacon for safe abortion access. What population will be most affected by the overturn, and how will the bill help? Yeah, so, like, if you look at across, well, so New York, we've basically codified Roe, which is really important. So it is a protected procedure here in New York, and we're going to uphold that, and that won't be eroded. Um, But as I mentioned, 16 states across the country have basically abortion bans, like what they call trigger bans, which is terrifying. Um, and then there's up to, I think, 26 states in which we are worried that, you know, we'll follow suit. So us being a beacon state for abortion access is going to be really critical, given that there are states as close as Pennsylvania, as close as Ohio, in which we'll anticipate seeing patients come in from. I would add, to that, you know, I think disproportionately it's going to impact uh, people of color. It's going to impact low-income people, immigrants people with disabilities and queer and trans people. 
How do you feel about the possible overturn of Roe v. Wayne? You know, it's heart-wrenching. I, before running for office, I ran the National Latina Institute for Reproductive Justice for 13 years. And I saw the, the realities of living in a hostile state. I met women who were splitting contraceptive pills because they didn't have access to health care. And then when they got pregnant, which they did because taking half a contraceptive pill doesn't work, then they were forced to actually go across the border to get abortion care, not in the United States. We're seeing countries like Mexico, Argentina, and Ireland liberalize and decriminalize abortion uh, and make it legal. And then here we are going backwards, which is completely terrifying. If Roe v. Wade is in fact overturned, it is expected that millions of women seeking abortions will come to New York. In 1970, when abortion was legalized in New York State, over 300,000 abortions were performed. More than half of those women lived out of state. And Emily Miles, the executive director of the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault, is especially concerned about those they serve, individuals that get pregnant after an assault. My name is Emily Miles, and I'm the executive director of the New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault, We're an organization based in New York City that works to prevent sexual violence and reduce the harm it causes through training, technical assistance, advocacy, and research. Obviously, we are firmly in support of access to all who would be seeking abortions to have access to accessible and affordable um, abortions. And so looking at the possibility of Roe versus Wade being overturned, we're deeply concerned about the impact that this would have on pregnant persons across the United States, but especially, of course, survivors of sexual violence. Yeah. And how would the overturn affect the population that you serve? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, we know that based on data, that um, approximately 3 million women in the United States experience pregnancy as a result of sexual assault during their lifetime. And we expect that those numbers are actually probably far less than they really are, because again, that's only inclusive of women, not all persons who might be pregnant. So it is excluding a number of individuals in that number. Um, But at minimum, we're looking at about 3 million women experiencing this. Um, And that is a huge population of persons who would not have access to abortions if they desire um, after an assault. You know, we this has been an evolving issue for a number of years. Public opinion is pretty clear that a majority of Americans support access to abortion and an even greater number of Americans support clauses that would allow abortion in the case of rape or incest. And up until about 10 years ago, those clauses were really common in anti-abortion legislation. But there was a wave of more conservative state legislatures that have come in in recent years. And the resulting anti-abortion legislation, most of them no longer include those exemptions. Um, And so that is problematic in a variety of ways. It excludes survivors from, you know, seeking abortion services if they were to find themselves to become pregnant. You know, to be honest, we advocate for the choice of anyone to be able to have access to abortion um, if they are pregnant and don't want to be. If you really care about 
sexual assault survivors in this country, we should all be supporting full access to abortion services. Because if we create a special class of pregnant people who might be eligible for abortion, we would be establishing the need for survivors to then prove that they were sexually assaulted, which is problematic for a variety of ways and honestly really difficult to do. We know that a majority of of assaults are not reported to law enforcement. And so that would then put the onus on survivors to be in a position to prove that they were assaulted. And that is what resulted in their pregnancy, which would be incredibly difficult to do and really problematic at a time when a survivor is going through an extreme amount of trauma. The time to help make sure both New Yorkers and our out-of-state neighbors can continue to access safe abortions is now. One way to take action is by contacting your local politicians. Find your assembly member and senator by using the links in our show notes. Reach out and ask them to support Assembly Bill A10148, also known as the Reproductive Freedom and Equity Bill. Finally, before we go, our weekly COVID update with Community Manager Daniel LaPlaza focused on COVID-19 here in New York City. On Tuesday, May 17th, the Commissioner of Health and Mental Hygiene of New York City announced that the city has reached a high alert level of COVID-19. This means there is a high community spread and an increasing pressure on the healthcare system. So what does this mean for you? Face masks are required on public transportation and in healthcare and communal settings. Beyond that, the city is advising all individuals regardless of vaccination status, to mask in any indoor public setting. That includes grocery stores, building lobbies, offices, and other common or shared spaces. Keep in mind, higher quality masks, such as KN95 and KF94 masks, can offer an additional layer of protection. And, like we mentioned last week, it's important to test frequently. If you need more at-home COVID tests, you're in luck. The White House just announced that Americans are now eligible for a third order of free at-home COVID tests. Make sure to check the link in our show notes to order yours. For more ways to get involved in your community, visit us at epicenter-nyc.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. And thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. And if you're not already a member, sign up today by using the link in our show notes. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Karavika. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description.